Podglomerate original. In 1990, there are dozens of television shows that utilize stand-up comedians. There are two television networks. There's the Comedy Channel and Ha, and they're only comedy. And there are, according to the Comedy USA Industry Guide, over 410 comedy clubs. You guys ever been to a comedy club? Like a typical comedy club? Yeah? Did it have a, an apostrophe and a backward Z spelled in bananas? <laughs> This is Maria Bamford. That's fun. I, uh... I, uh, I was... Because comedy clubs are so vague, you know, and they're advertising. I was like, well, we're going to be having some comedy. What, what kind of comedy? Well, it's going to be comedy. This is going to be hilarious. It's going to be the kind of comedy I like, which is barrel-chested Polynesian men who tell caustic one-liners. <laughs> Not necessarily ladies drink free. <laughs> This is from the television series The Comedians of Comedy that also featured Brian Posehn, Zach Galifianakis, and Patton Oswalt. And today on the show, we're looking at the remarkable events that transpired within stand-up to lead us to this point. Welcome to the History of Stand-Up, the show where comedian Wayne Fetterman teaches... And wait, and I am also a professor of comedy at USC. The show where comedian and professor Wayne Fetterman teaches us all a little bit more about the history of stand-up. And I'm your fellow student, Andrew Steven. As we looked at before, the comedy club explosion is still Yeah, you warm. called it a plague. Yeah, because it's, it's everywhere. It could be almost like a rash. It's just growing and growing. It's growing. It's growing. Uh, and corporate America is noticing in a big way. I remember they had the Coors Comedy Commandos. That is, that's uh, that's where they discovered Wanda Sykes. She won uh, a comedy showcase sponsored by Coors. By Coors. Yeah. I don't know if that was the Comedy Commandos, but I know she was... There was a lot of competitions, all kind of based on the idea that came out of the San Francisco comedy competition okay. way back in the 70s. And then they had the Miller Lite comedy tour, and then the Johnny Walker comedy search. Lots of alcohol. Yeah. Comedy clubs was a great way to sell alcohol and fried cheese and some chicken tenders. And then even Agree Shampoo, they sponsored a woman's comedy competition and Chiclets Gum. I hosted a few of those on college campuses. Uh, is Chiclets still around? Still around. Still delicious in those. I'm still, I guess I'm still hawking Chiclets Gum <laughs> after all these years. But the biggest corporate entities were about to jump in and that was... Time Warner. And Viacom. Right. With uh, their, uh, the Comedy Channel and, and Ha. And these were two cable networks, only comedy. Only comedy. And what happened was they struggled out of the gate. And they both, without going into great detail, because it's not the history of Comedy Central or anything like that. This is the history of stand-up. They couldn't seem to get big enough market shares. And so instead of hunkering down and getting this big war going like a Coke-Pepsi situation. Or like uh, HBO and Showtime. Exactly. They were like, we're throwing in the white towel or we're throwing in the towel. We're waving a white flag. Just as long as there's fabric involved. There's some sort of white fabric. And then they gave up and they merged. And that became Comedy TV, which we now know as... As Comedy Central. Right. But the important thing, more than anything, is... This was a very clear warning sign that maybe this expansion that had been going on for a decade 
was about to come to a close. A huge red flag. Believe me, it's going to get bad. I like how serious this is becoming talking about comedy. During this time as a reaction to a lot of the trends that were happening in stand-up and the corporatization, the clubs, it gave birth to this new style of stand-up called alternative comedy. You hang out with comics, actors, I don't know if you've ever done this, but you go out late at night, you're having coffee, you're noshing, what have you, getting to know you, you're sitting around a table, it's like a psychotic poker game. This is Janine Garofalo. Okay, I'll see your alcoholism and low self-esteem and raise you one fear of intimacy and an ego trip for two. How's that? Yeah, a reaction against what the traditional comedy is, is the story of stand-up. This most notably happened for those listening to our podcast. Well, no, in the 50s with Mort Saul and Bob Newhart and Shelley Berman and those guys doing a different kind of comedy in different venues as opposed to those nightclub and presentation house and Borscht Belt comedians. Now, you were in, you had done Comedy I Boom. Had done, com. Yeah. In the 80s, there were a lot of people trying to sort of be these comics that were already established from the 70s. That's Margaret Cho. At what point did you realize, oh, this is start, there's a new, what they call alternative comedy. When did you first say, I think you were in LA by that time, right? Uh, by uh, by uh, 1991, I was in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, I was doing, not necessarily because I thought of myself as an alternative comedian, but because uh, my friends were doing them and they were oh. putting them on so friends uh, I was friends with Janine Garofalo of course Janine was was somehow she just seemed cool and so I, I I always just wanted to be like her in the 90s a lot of the term alternative applied to the venue in which comedy took 100 percent true so just, it wasn't in clubs and theaters it was an alternative to that you didn't need Mitzi Shore or Bud Friedman you could put on a show at an alternative venue I remember it, that Janine and uh, uh, Dana Gould and... That was myself, Dana Gould, Colin Quinn. This is Janine Garofalo, who we heard earlier. And so they started doing this show at this bookstore called The Big and Tall Bookstore on Beverly Boulevard, which was upstairs. Like, she just felt like her act was just too personal and casual, and it would seem like her hard joke ratio was mm -hmm. just not high enough. To this day, I tend to have a hard time on Friday and Saturday nights, especially second show Friday at a mainstream comedy club. But I tend to only do venues that are not comedy club proper, whether it be a music venue or or, or an art gallery, whatever it is. Yeah, it wasn't in these comedy clubs. Also going were shows at the Onyx on Vermont, also Pedro's on Vermont. Um, then there was a Josh DiDonato show at Largo, Kathy Griffin, who was doing her version of it at the Groundlings. And uh, Beth Lapidus started on Cabaret. The idea of the Young Cabaret was comedians, young comedians, but you couldn't do anything you've ever done on stage before. And that was also the case at the Big and Tall Bookstore. Nothing polished from your act. Like literally the opposite of what a comedy club booker would want. And, you know, I would say that I, I have erred on the side of doing too much new stuff. I mean, this is Beth Lapidus, who created the Young Cabaret in 1993. I mean, I was on stage hosting the Young Cabaret every show. So I just, I mean, every week I was doing 20 new minutes. Here's Patton Oswald at the Young Cabaret. I don't think we've yet surpassed 
uh, the Cheeto is the perfect snack food. There is no, yes, there is no better. And a lot of you are resisting this, but really, I can win this. Because Cheetos are like, Cheetos are the throwing your hands in the air. I did give up. That's what that snack is. Because it's the only, it's the most antisocial snack ever invented. Like, it just turns you into a pariah as you eat it. Like, your fingers get the creepy, greasy powder on them. And your breath smells like the fart you're going to rip later because Cheetos, there's no change from a Cheeto part and a Cheeto bag, it's the same thing. It's like, I hate to bring that up, but it's true. It's funny, because it's true. And then uh, I'll open a whole bag of Cheetos and I'll have a few handfuls, and then I'll go, okay, enough. And then I'll go wash my hands and then go have more. And I'll keep, like, have a few handfuls and go, look at this, what's wrong with me? And then I'll wash and then come back. Hi, Cheetos. <laughs> I wanted to get nice and clean for you guys. <laughs> and then by the time you get to the bottom, too, with those, those little fucking nuggets, and you gotta reach in there, and the sides of the bag are covered with this shit. Now, so now you just got that big orange claw, and you're just literally... Because at that point, once you reach the bottom, now you fucking, you officially hate yourself. Now there's no, there's no pretext. You can manage to just take off your clothes and just squat. And then there's a, these, this kind of percolating scene of new rooms. One of them is called the Diamond Club. I mean, we're entertaining ourselves and putting these shows on basically for ourselves and our friends. That's David Cross talking with the New York Times. We happen to be doing it at the, at the literal epicenter of, you know, where entertainment comes from. And, and we are also working with people who, at least for myself and everybody, you know, at, at each wave, uh, was working with somebody who was established, like Janine Garofalo when we were doing stuff in L.A. She was already popular and she was always, uh, she was already the poster girl for that kind of comedy. And, um, and that's where I first saw Bob Odenkirk and David Cross, where I saw Mary Lynn, where Tenacious D got their start. And then, of course, David Cross and Bob Odenkirk get their television show. And it's called Mr. Show. And that was the first time I feel like we had the alternative aesthetic on television. We meet Paul F. Tompkins, and we meet Scott Aukerman comes in at the end of the show. Brian Posehn. Brian Posehn, obviously. I re, you know, Tom Kenny became SpongeBob. He's he's on the show. Hey, everybody. Uh, I'm David Cross. No, no, no. Hold it, hold it, no. Don't encourage him. Don't encourage him, folks. David, do you have any idea what time it is? What? The audience and I have been sitting here waiting. This, this isn't going to work. What, because I was a little late? It's not just that, man. You know, I was raised at a time when people respected each other. The mid-70s. You know, you came of age at a different time. The late 70s. We're from different generations. So? So? I don't get your movies or your music, you know? I was into Star Wars. You were into The Empire Strikes Back, you know? I like Bananarama. You like that bangle shit. Oh, hey, lay off, Pops! <laughs> you know, it's people of your generation that wreck things for us, the people of one year later. <laughs> you know, we're still cleaning up your mess. Uh, you know, I'm sorry, folks. We just don't relate. I think this show is over. Oh, that's good. Yeah, quit. Just like your generation. Give up. <laughs>
So it's like quite a uh, convergence. Just the other day, yeah. Mark Marin said on his podcast oh, yeah. that, you know, I talk to a lot of younger comics now and their history of comedy really starts at Mr. Show or maybe 10 years ago. <laughs> it just shows you the impact this had on modern comedy and stand up. So it was all of those those people came out of Mr. Show, including, I think, was Karen Kilgariff was on that show and Doug Benson, who still has. So it really ushered in in a very big way. So when Mark Maron says that comedy started or for a lot of people, comedy started with Mr. Show, I understand that. But even if you listen yeah, to this, he's saying he's there's a there's a long, rich history even before that. And, you know, when you mention Robin Williams or Pryor or Kennison or anybody, they're like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. But th right. that's definitely a defining. And Dino, was Dino one? Yes, Dino, yeah, was yeah. Ben Stiller, and, and then Conan, and et cetera. Yeah, et cetera. yeah. So, and works for Dan Harmon yes, right sir. now. Yes. So it's the repercussions and reverberations of what happened from the Diamond Club, and then Mr. Show birthed an incredible alternative scene. Especially with, out of Los Angeles. No question. No question. And during this time, it wasn't all alternative comedy. There were still comedy clubs, and sometimes comedians would perform in one room or the other. Sometimes they would perform in both. <laughs> no, I I actually on I, I do resent the the alternative scene for for one reason only. This is Bill Burr on his Monday morning podcast, and that's because that scene created a a situation that it basically distilled. All of the horror out of attempting to be a comedian. That's what I don't like about it. No heckling, no drunks, no obnoxious behavior, no aggressiveness from the... Every, every fucking reason. And you've just created like this fucking comedy womb. Well, I mean, what's good about the, the audience it was they have the fewest expectations for their performers... Let's see what you, let's just see something new and really, and really, it was always very open to experimental stuff. This is Patton Oswalt talking with Google about sort of the birth of his alternative comedy journey. For me was when comedy began collapsing in the mid 90s and the comedians in San Francisco just said, uh, let's just start our own rooms. Let's just find a coffee shop or a bookstore and ask if we can go do stand up. So that spirit of do it anywhere you want. Uh, and then that spirit got taken down to L.A., um, and that's where, where the Largo started. Pat Oswald was one of the kings of this alternative comedy room called Largo. But he talks about when, like, traditional comedians would come into Largo and try to do a set and not do well, because the audience would sniff it out. Yeah. They would sniff it out. Well, I personally feel like they're all crucial. As really? A, yeah, I do. That's the voice of Tignataro. Coming up in stand-up, I did comedy clubs, I did rock clubs, I did um, colleges, I did a run of churches. I was headlining churches. And I also did a tour in people's living rooms, you know? Right, I remember that. Yeah. And I feel like that has, all of those um, elements have prepared me for kind of anything. San Francisco and Los Angeles weren't the only two cities where an alt-comedy scene was growing. David Cross got started in Boston, and Mark Marin started an alt-room in downtown New York. I started going into, into the city, and I would just sit in the back of clubs. This is Artie Lang talking with Mark Marin on the WTF podcast. Which ones? Uh, Stand Up New York, The Cellar. Uh, and I would just watch guys 
Yeah. And that was, that could be depressing, you know. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, I first saw you at, at the Luna Lounge, the one on 8th and 16th in the back of Rebar. Remember that place? Oh, know? my God. And uh, The original uh, the alt origi- comedy room. Yeah. At Rebar. At Rebar, yeah. So it wasn't even Luna yet. It yeah. was uh, just, I think they, it was. Is that, it wasn't called Luna Lounge at that point? The one on Ludlow Street was Luna Lounge. Right. The one at Rebar, I think the show was like tentatively called Eating It or yeah. something like that. But yeah. I mean, that was like the very beginning. People were sitting on the floor. Right. Okay, so these. Alternative comedy rooms are getting more popular, and in 1996, the New York Times called Luna Lounge's Monday night the best place to see comedy in New York City. But I still don't understand why that meant traditional comedy clubs are closing. A lot of it was greed. A lot of it was these comedy clubs started charging a lot of money. Between the cover charge and the two-drink minimum, people would look at their bill at the end of the night and like, was this worth $38? What else could I have done? Per person. Four of us have all gone out. Now it's a $150 evening. That's a lot of money to see a comedy show. Especially when it's on TV. It's not on TV. It's all over TV. VHS tapes are, you can get comedy in your home anytime you want. And then, yeah, then they got into that as well. Like Paramount started releasing home videotapes. I did one for, if you did a test drive of a car, they gave you a Dodge comedy showcase tape of young comedians. So it was ubiquitous on television. I remember when they would start doing three shows on a Saturday night, like that middle show, you would get rushed in there, they'd do the show, is barely 90 minutes, and then as soon as the show was over, they'd pump on this loud music to force the crowd out of there. All they could think about is that, oh my God, this is a, an audio assault on my senses. Yeah. Yeah, the same technique that the CIA uses to get information out of political prisoners is what comedy clubs use to chase people out of the room. And get a new crowd of people in. Well, comedy clubs are in the business of selling as many drinks as possible and some of this fried food. And so people just got sick of it. Right. And which is where alternative comedy obviously became very appealing, especially in the big cities. And in a way, the alt scene sort of filled a void for people who just loved comedy. You know, the comedy cellar, which now is packed every night with comedy fans, was they, they were trying to get people to come to those shows. And it was pretty depressing. And the improv that opened in New York closes in the 90s. The original comedy club. Catch a Rising Star, which is, I mean, I couldn't believe when I heard that club had closed because when I was starting out, there was limousines double parked out in front, lines around the corner to get into Catch a Rising Star. That's how much of a scene it was. Closed. So, uh... The King Retires. CNN Headline News, I'm David Goodenow. If you're on the East Coast, the Johnny Carson era is over. Further west, the end is near. Carson bid his TV audience goodbye Friday after almost 30 years as host of The Tonight Show. And that creates this late-night war. It was well-documented in Bill Carter's book where... The Late Shift? Eventually, the top two contenders for Johnny Carson's throne were two comedians who came to Los Angeles during that great migration after Freddie Prinze broke on The Tonight Show. And both of them were two of the top comedians who were performing at the Comedy Store. David Letterman and Jay Leno. Okay, now I'll tell you about uh, my dog and then uh, uh, I'm out of here. Here's a clip Uh, of David Letterman talking about dog food. It says, new improved flavor. 
How'd you like to be the guy who gets to make that determination, huh? <laughs> now, the other, the other piece of information on the can, it says this product contains all beef, not a speck of cereal. This is apparently a source of pride to the folks who can the slop. Not a speck of cereal. Now, my dog, Bob, spends his day rooting through garbage and drinking out of the toilet. <laughs> Chances are he's not gonna mind a speck of cereal. Thank you, folks, for joining me. And here's a clip of Jay Leno around the same time. Welcome to the Comedy Store. Welcome, welcome. Uh, I am always amazed at people who design public washrooms because I don't think these people have bathrooms in their own homes. Whenever you go to a public washroom, the sink is down here and the paper towel is about four and a half feet higher than the sink. So when you wash your hands, you go over a towel of water, it runs down your arm. <laughs> at least I have towels here, which is a nice touch. I mean, so many people now try to be hip. Instead of having towels, have those stupid hand blowers. You gotta stand there, word. People about hand blowers in washrooms never assume that you might want to wash your face. <laughs> gotta stand there for 20 minutes with hot air. My eyes! Is my face dry yet? Your face is burned beyond recognition. But... Let's pick up the girls, Larry! My retina melted! You ever been to a washroom at a gas station? That's the lowest. Make you feel like a crook. Excuse me, can I have the key to the washroom? Yeah, here it is. It's on this big ring and don't try to steal it. <laughs> hey, thank you very much. You've been terrific. Thank you. But only one could take over Johnny Carson's spot. Uh, our first guest, uh, this is very exciting, uh, becomes the new host of The Tonight Show. Uh, this May 25th. We are always very pleased to have him with us. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back our old friend, Jay Leno. Jay. Letterman ended up going to CBS, and Conan takes over what was then Letterman's spot. And again, ushering in, as irreverent as Letterman was, I feel like Conan put his own stamp, and, and very much like Johnny Carson, like in October 1962 when he took over The Tonight Show, Conan had a very tough start. Almost was going to get canceled, but eventually found its footing, and became a great destination, especially for these alternative comedians. I was the last person that anyone would have expected to get this job. I was a complete unknown. This is Conan O'Brien on Bravo Profiles. I think a lot of people tuned in just to see this complete unknown try and take over David Letterman's show, and uh, they thought I was going to just explode and dissolve into a puddle of liquid right there on national TV, and I did. While Conan O'Brien was continuing to push boundaries into edgier stand-up, David Letterman was learning about the restrictions of having his show on in an earlier time slot. So I've been traveling. I was in Australia. Uh, I was in Australia over Easter, which was interesting to note. They celebrate Easter the same way we do, commemorating the death and resurrection of Jesus by telling our children a giant bunny rabbit <laughs> left chocolate eggs in the night. I wonder why we're messed up as a race. Anybody got any clues? I've read the Bible. Can't find the word bunny or chocolate anywhere in the book. 
Why those two things? Why not, you know, goldfish left Lincoln logs in your sock drawer? You know, just making stuff up, go hog wild. But I think it's interesting to note how people act on religious beliefs. You know what I mean? Like a lot of Christians wear crosses around their necks. Nice sentiment. But do you think when Jesus comes back, he's really going to want to look at a cross? That was Bill Hicks on David Letterman's The Late Show. And after hearing his performance, Letterman and his producer decided to cut that from broadcast because they felt his entire routine was inappropriate for the earlier time slot. And many, many years later, Letterman brings on Hicks's mom and plays that set that he did that was censored by CBS and apologizes to her. Uh, and then the, the, the sad part of this story was later the following year, February 26th, which coming up, uh, oddly enough, will be about 15 years, the anniversary of uh, Bill's death. He passed away on February 26th uh, in 1994. He was only 32 years old uh. and, and sadly had in the meantime, Bill Hicks has become this legend to stand-ups in general, but specifically inspired a new generation of very activist political comedians. Political and social comedians. All, but even more than that, they all had a very specific agenda that wasn't hidden in their comedy. It defined their comedy. And besides Seinfeld, which dominated the decade, the industry kept creating sitcoms, even though the comedy boom was over, around comedians. Here's just a few. Jamie Foxx, Mark Curry, he was hanging with Mr. Mr. Cooper. Yeah, Ray Romano, Drew Carey, Ellen, I don't have to say her last name, Jeff Foxworthy, Bernie Mac. Paul Reiser. So the interesting thing about the Bernie Mac show is Larry Wilmore, one of the creators, uh, says he... Also a stand-up. Also and a stand-up. also wrote on In Living Color. That's true. He, uh, he says he came up with the idea of sort of having the sitcom star talk directly to the camera, which we saw later happen with The Office and with Modern Family, the sort of faux documentary style. Oh, I see. So you're not counting It's Gary Shandling's show or George Burns and Gracie Allen? That's what he says. A lot of comedy historians, mainly myself, believe that the 90s into the 2000s was basically the story of the rise and influence of alternative comedy. But I am wrong, and there's way more to the story. This time period is also a golden age of African-American comedy, in part inspired by Eddie Murphy, who was, of course, inspired by Richard Pryor, and to an extent, Bill Cosby's movie himself and that television show he did. And here is a very interesting part about it. It's really spearheaded by the Fox Channel. They get this, an alternative to Saturday Night Live, which is a primetime sketch show called In Living Color. Let's get something straight, kids. Homie may be a clown, but he don't make a fool out of himself. Why you become a clown, dear? I guess it's because I got so much love to give. And it's part of my prison work release program. 
I got about five more years of this clown crap. Created by Keenan Ivory Wayans, who was a stand-up, and his brothers on it, Damon Wayans is a stand-up, and David Allen Greer's a stand-up, and Jamie Foxx has a little part of it. He's a stand-up. Tommy Davidson's a stand-up. And Jim Carrey. Yes, that's where Jim Carrey sort of had his break. Of course. The next thing you know, Jim Carrey's a movie star out of this. Boy, those riots were really something, weren't they? I've never seen anything quite like it. Of course, I was perfectly safe because I'm on In Living Color. I just put a big sign on my back, black-owned. I was invincible, man. Hey, everybody, Compton, let's go. Don't forget, Arsenio Hall, who started his show in the late 80s and actually was the first late-night host to sort of make a real dent into what Johnny Carson was doing. And then, very importantly, a guy named Martin Lawrence, who hosts, not only was the first host of the Deaf Comedy Jam, but has a Fox sitcom called Martin. Put your hands together for my main man, Mr. Martin Lawrence! What's up? Oh, y'all come out for these damn Deaf Jams again, don't y'all? Thank you. This is where we present all the best young black, all right. All the best young comedians all over the world. You know, because white people go going, well, he doesn't have to be black. <laughs> we ain't seen none on this motherfucking show. But it was just another example of a new showcase that allowed comedians to break out of the pack, like Monique and Bernie Mac and Eddie Griffin and Tracy Morgan and Dave Chappelle, who we'll get to in a minute, and Chris Tucker and J.B. Smooth and Cat Williams and one Deaf Comedy Jam alumni who went on to set the bar for a comedy special in 1996, Chris Rock. People are full of shit, man. People shoot heroin and go, you know, red me to kill you. Red meat to kill you. Only in America will we say some motion like red meat to kill you. We got too much food in America. Too much food. What do you mean red meat to kill you? People are starving all over the world. What do you mean red meat to kill you? No, no, no. I don't eat no red meat? No. Don't eat no green meat, okay? <laughs> what you talking about? Yo, if you're one of the chosen few people on this earth that's lucky enough to get your hands on a steak, bite the shit out of it, okay? <laughs> Come on, we got so much food. Do you realize America's the only country in the whole world that makes people feel bad for being fat? The only country in the whole world. People starving all over the world. If you fat someplace else, people are like, damn, how you do that? <laughs> That's amazing. We got so much food in America, we're allergic to food. Allergic to food. Hungry people ain't allergic to shit. So you think anybody in Rwanda's got a fucking lactose intolerance? <laughs> I hear a lot of people talk about that Chris Rock special about how important it is. And, and maybe I was too young or maybe I was too sheltered, but 
the thing that stands out to me in the 90s is Adam Sandler. And I remember people used to pass around his CDs. Were you in middle school? I think I was in... Elementary? No, I was in elementary school. Ugh. And you were allowed to hear this? <laughs> no, that was why it was so popular, because it was, it was taboo. <laughs> well, his album, What the Hell Ever Happened to Me, which contains the Hanukkah song, his yeah. big hit, is in the modern sound scan era the biggest selling comedy album of all time. And I, and I kind of knew Adam Sandler from Saturday Night Live, but I didn't realize that he was doing stand-up as well. And then, Well, there were sketches on these albums and usually a little stand-up, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and then, and then, of course, obviously he went into starring in all these movies. And if I'm not mistaken, has a Netflix special coming out this year. Yes. Of him back doing stand-up. Guess who eats together at the Carnegie Deli? Bowser from Shanana and Arthur Fonzarelli. <laughs> Paul Newman's half Jewish, Goldie Hawn's half too. Put them together. What a fine looking Jew. <laughs> you don't need deck the halls or jingle bell rock. Cause you can spin a dreidel with Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock, both Jewish. And of course, in the middle of all of this, Comedy Central finally finds its footing and becomes a successful venture. And part of it is due to John Stewart hosting The Daily Show. And part of it is due to South Park. Also, Comedy Central reached back in history and recreated roasts for television now on basic cable even the language was starting to loosen up a little bit and so these old 50s style roasts from the friars club were brought back to great success and continue to this day i guess like any other you know good comedy fan the comedy central roasts were a big introduction for a lot of people this is comedy journalist julie seba uh but the history of roasting actually goes back i mean the friars club kind of unofficially started in 1904 uh, and about 45, 50 years into this organization. So we're looking at like the late forties, early fifties, the toasts turn into roasts. The Friars Club is a fraternal organization. Now they allow women in of comedians that started in New York. There was a number of these. There's one called the Lambs. It'd be similar to like American Legion, but for comedians. Yeah. And one of their ways of honoring one of their members was to roast them, which was to insult them to no end and then say, I love you. And the only reason we're doing this is because we love you. But yeah, then there was like the Dean Martin version. Uh, in the 60s and 70s. The uh, it, it ran for like two years and then they would do kind of these periodic specials from Las Vegas. The Dean Martin Celebrity Road. Primetime on Primetime, yeah. Major network. But they weren't as profane as the actual Friars Club roasts were. Here's Johnny Carson roasting Don Rickles on the Craft Music Hall. And now, ladies and gentlemen, your roastmaster for tonight is Johnny. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and I bid you a very warm welcome to the Friars Roast, Don Rickles. In the past, the Friars Club has honored such great luminaries as Al Jolson, George M. Cohen, Irving Berlin, and tonight, Don Rickles. <laughs> Which should give you some indication of the deterioration of this club. 
<laughs> During... <laughs> Rickles got his early start in show business as a heckler at telethons. Now here's Johnny Carson roasting Don Rickles at an actual Friars Club roast. Now let's discuss Mr. Rickles, the entertainer. Once again, we have to separate fact from myth. Now I've seen Don entertain, I suppose, 50 times, and I've always enjoyed his joke. But when you see Don's act, which incidentally has all the subtlety of an elephant's prick. You know, Comedy Central started filming the Friars Roast in the late 90s, uh, I want to say 98. And they had uh, four years of showing the Friars Roast as Comedy Central specials before they started doing their own. And that's kind of when people really started picking up on the whole celebrity aspect of it. Carson went out with Jennifer Love Hewitt, and she's here tonight. God, she's so beautiful. That is Sarah Silverman. You know, people say that you're the next Audrey Hepburn. Does that scare you, knowing you're going to die of colon cancer? (laughs) Comedy Central started doing these roasts, and believe it or not, they became hugely popular. So anyway, so they did Pamela Anderson, and they did... uh, Drew Carey, Hugh Hefner, William Shatner... Joan Rivers, David Hasselhoff, Donald Trump. And comedians started getting famous for this, like Greg Giraldo. Corolla, look at you, you horse-toothed bastard. Corolla, you got a mouthful of two-by-fours. Every, every time you smile, I remember to waterproof my deck. Jeffrey Ross, obviously, who's still doing the roasts. Instead of getting his life together, Charlie went out on a national comedy tour. Here's Jeff Ross roasting Charlie Sheen. Where every night, Charlie, you walked on stage and you told the audience you were a warlock from Mars. Oh, maybe you are, but I'll tell you what you're not. A comedian from Earth. (laughs) And then it seemed like every new roast, a new comedian would break out. Stand-ups like Sarah Silverman, Amy Schumer, Anthony Jeselnik, and more recently, Natasha Leggero and Nikki Glaser. And this was just one example of how Comedy Central was introducing America to new stand-up comedians. Eventually, they started breaking their own comedians by having these Freddie Prinze and Friends kind of shows. Like, it would be Premium Blend, and now they had another one later on, like Live at Gotham or something like that. And then if you were great on that, you could do your half an hour, which was called Comedy Central Presents. And then if they loved you even more, then you could do an hour. And... If they loved you even more, you could have your own television show, which is eventually what happened to like Daniel Tosh or Amy Schumer. And there's also another comedian that, as we get into the new century, has a show on Comedy Central called Chappelle Show. I'm seeing it. I can see why. I see why stars are crazy, man. These motherfuckers. I went to Disney World with my kids, which is a big deal for me. I don't get to see my kids so much. I do Chappelle Show 20 hours a day. Sleep for like half an hour, raise my kids for 10, 20 minutes, and I go back to work. Now, this particular day, I got to hook up with the kids. We went to Disney World. Everybody at the park, fucking everybody. Hey, hey, I'm Rick James, bitch. Hey, I'm Rick James, bitch. It's like, hey, man, hey. 
You mind not calling me a bitch in front of my kids? Time out, motherfucker. We take a day off. Dave Chappelle creates this hilarious sketch show. And Neil Brennan. Right. For Comedy Central. And then when they want to give him this huge deal, basically not only turns his back to Comedy Central, turns his back to the entire industry and walks away. And making his legend even greater. I just quickly want to mention one other pivotal moment I thought. Remember we talked about Martin Lawrence. He later released two motion pictures. And this was in the tradition that started with Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy and all of that. Now, four comedians get together, all veterans of Deaf Comedy Jam. D.L. Hughley, Cedric the Entertainer, Steve Harvey, and Bernie Mac go on this tour, Spike Lee films it and releases it as a movie. And they call themselves the original kings of comedy. Yeah, I remember, I don't remember what movie I was in, but I remember seeing a trailer for that film at the theater. Over one million screaming fans. What are you gonna do for excitement today? I'm gonna drive past the police and pull my wallet out and hope I don't get shot 41 times. If I drop my wallet in front of police, I know the rules now, I will not pick that up, I'll kick it all the way home. The original Kings of Comedy. <laughs> the most successful comedy tour ever. Now we about to make a little change up in here. That was a huge success. And other comedians were releasing films. Margaret Cho released a film. This was probably began in like 1997. This real desire, like I would really love to make a film that is outside of the constraints of, say, an HBO special, which had to be under an hour. This is before crowdfunding. Put all my money into making it. It, it, it was a, a leap of faith. We were actually making things on film. So you would go and you would get the short ends of the, you know, the film that was unused at the end of a shoot. And then you would put it all together and make a movie. It's really important when you don't have a sense of being supported by the structure of entertainment, the world of it, that if you create your own shows and you create your own venues to perform and to create, I think... That's really where it's at. You know, that's what I always believed in. One of the first jobs I ever had as a stand-up comedian was working on a lesbian cruise. It was Olivia Cruises. They do cruises for women all over the world, and I went with them to Alaska because lesbians love whale watching. They fucking love it. They love it more than pussy. They love it. And it's interesting, even though this is the alternative scene and it's all different and we're not more personal, there's a lot of continuation of what had been done before. For example, Dimitri Martin, who is a one-liner comedian. I like digital cameras because they enable you to reminisce immediately. or Mitch Hedberg, who is a one-liner comedian. All right, we're here with Mitch Hedberg, and he's going to be at the Tempe Improv this weekend, and uh, thanks for stopping by. This is from a student interview at Arizona State University. I saw you on Comedy Central Presents, oh, yeah. and I thought it was absolutely hilarious. Thanks, man. And your delivery is completely different than anybody else I've ever seen. Uh, where does that come from? Uh, that just comes from, uh, you know, years of uh, 
trying to tell jokes and just uh, settling on a certain thing. I guess it's just whatever feels comfortable. I'm not a storyteller in real life, uh -huh. so uh, I don't see the need to string my jokes in a story-like fashion. I just figure one thought, when it's over, I just go to the next thought. Yeah. I like rice. Rice is great when you're hungry and you want 2,000 of something. One-liner comedians, which goes back to pre-Rodney Dangerfield to even Henny Youngman, who would just do simple jokes with no transitions. Folks, I feel good. I just got back from a pleasure trip. Took my mother-in-law to the airport. <laughs> In 2005, four alternative comedians who were doing these little rooms, not major comedy clubs, and certainly not huge arenas that Kings of Comedy was filmed in, decided to do something called... The Comedians of Comedy. Exactly. Which yeah. is how we started the episode today. With Maria Bamford. She was one of the four. The other three were... Brian Posehn, Zach Galifianakis... And Pat Oswalt. They did a TV show where they followed them around on tour on Comedy Central, but how I was exposed to it was... Early on in Netflix, I remember I got the, the DVDs sent to my house. Here's a little bit of trivia. The Comedians of Comedy film on Netflix was the very first piece of original content that Netflix ever financed. I was at a dinner party the other night with my girlfriend and... Um, this is Zach Galifianakis. After the dinner party, we ended up playing charades. with this other couple that, and that couple we played charades against, they were deaf. They were fucking amazing. Keep in mind, this is Netflix before streaming, but the internet and streaming is about to impact comedy in unimaginable ways. Creating a comedy boom the likes of which we've never seen before. Hi, gang. Uh, just woke up, so I thought I'd serenade you, serenade you rather, with a song. Uh, it's about my life. That's the voice of 16-year-old Bo Burnham in his bedroom in 2006. In a few short months, his videos would earn over one million views, propelling him into a life of fame that many comedians working years would never accomplish. But that's next week on The History of Stand-Up. The History of Stand-Up is hosted, written, and produced by Wayne Fetterman and me, Andrew Steven. The show is also produced by Jeff Umbro and Chris Buniello of The Podglomerate. You can find more of their podcasts at thepodglomerate.com. Special thanks to Margaret Cho, Janine Garofalo, Tignataro, and Julie Siba, whose book, Ringside at the Roast Battle is available on Amazon.com. Also thanks to the Abraham Comedy Archive and to Jordan Brady and Jake Brady. Jordan's I Am Comic trilogy features a bunch of great interviews with stand-up comedians, and Jake helped pull some interview footage from that for us. Some of the music in the episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder. You can find more about the show, episodes, and extras at thehistoryofstandup.com, at histofstandup on Twitter, or on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend and leave a review. It really helps us out, and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening.
the Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.